Good evening, everyone. I'm Ian James Wright from Washington, D.C., and you're listening to The Alphabetical Fugazi, the only podcast that devotes an episode each to discussing every song in the band's catalog, from Fuga A to Fugazi. Joining me today to discuss Reclamation from the 1991 album Steady Diet of Nothing is Alison Wolfe, a foundational figure in the Riot Girl movement who, along with her work in many other musical projects, fronted the band Bratmobile and co-founded Ladyfest. Allison, thank you for joining me. How are you doing? Hey, I'm all right. Just sweating because it's summer. Yeah, <laughs> it's a it's a sweaty one here. We we are both living in California now. You a little? Uh, you're you're down in L.A. right? Yeah, and I don't have AC. Well, oh. I kind of do, but I haven't really hooked it up. <laughs> so I was reading a little about your life, sort of outside of music, and the more I read, the more I felt akin to you. Like our lives have interesting little parallels. Um, I was born in DC, and you lived there for a long time, and uh, you lived in Thailand for a little while. I lived in South Korea. Uh, at some point, we both moved to New York without any jobs lined up and just, you know, for a change of pace, kind of. And then we moved to California. So um, we're we're on similar trajectories in some ways. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do you know what you're doing out here? I'm not sure what I'm doing, but... <laughs> uh, I'm not sure. There's a little uncertainty right now. Who knows? Uh, <laughs> things might change with me. Yeah. Well, you know, I moved here because of the weather. So <laughs> there you go. The weather's nice when it's not uh, all smoky and fiery, I must say. Yeah. Yeah, so um, I was trying to reconstruct a little bit your history back in the day with Fugazi. And, like, it seems that 1991, aside from being the year that Steady Diet came out, it was a pretty eventful year because basically you played your first show with an early form of Bratmobile, like early that year. And then you went to Washington, D.C. in the spring. Uh, you opened a Fugazi show in July. And then later that summer was the famous International Pop Underground Convention in Olympia. And you and Fugazi both played there. So I, I always assumed that's the year that um, you met those guys. Is that the case? Did you know them before that at all? Well, I was um, thinking about it. And I know the first time I saw Fugazi play was the summer of 1980. 89. Mm -hmm. And I, um, I think, yeah, I had just come back from uh, Thailand. I was an exchange student there for almost a year. And I was just hanging around downtown a lot and going to a lot of shows. And I know that Fugazi toured through the Northwest in 88, 89, and also 90, I believe. Um, maybe every year, who knows? Yeah, probably. But, um, <laughs> but I do remember 89 and um, going to their show out at a Grange Hall and Beat Happening played as well. And uh, and I, I don't know if I met them then or not, but I mean, that's the first time I became aware of them because mm -hmm. I didn't know I didn't know about them before that. Like I I, I hadn't I don't think I'd ever listened to them before or anything. So, um yeah, like so I you know cuz everything was so much more regional back then yeah. and I didn't have many records. I guess I had some new wave records, but um we grew up just kind of taping records and things and the radio on cassettes and taping stuff off other people, so <laughs> I don't know. But I yeah, I'm trying to think when I actually met them. I think um it was it was probably 1991 cuz that's kind of how we when we met most everyone because that's when we started our band Bratmobile Molly and I were going to the University of Oregon in Eugene Oregon at the time and um, we kind of kept saying we were 
in a band <laughs> that we named. <laughs> yeah, we named it early on. We probably even named it still in 1990. We called it Bratmobile, but we didn't we didn't really have songs maybe like one acapella thing or two um but calvin called our bluff he uh called us up one day and was like hey i'm putting on this show it's gonna be valentine's day this is for 1991 but it was still 1990 probably but anyways but yeah he called us and said yeah okay valentine's day 1991 yeah okay um bikini kill's gonna uh play and some velvet sidewalk and i want you guys to open your band bratmobile and we were like we're not a band he's like you're always saying you're a band and we were just like oh okay so then we had to get it yeah we had to get it together so yeah we just quick talked to our friends in uh, this band, Oswald Five O from eugene oregon robert christie was um the guy who helped us out in that band local punk and uh, he gave us the keys to his practice space and um that was and let us use our equipment that was great and but then I was like well how do we write songs and he said well I don't know listen to the Ramones or something (laughs) that's great advice I know right and so in my mind I was like okay I'm never gonna listen to the Ramones because (laughs) I want us to sound different so of course we were already like pretty contrary so um yeah so I still don't own like any Ramones anything um (laughs) but well it would have been nice if uh if I could have even played like the Ramones but anyways um, (laughs) so we couldn't play much at the time but yeah, so we just went up there and played our show and all that. Um, and it, you know, at the time we're on stage going, are these songs? Are we a band? Does this count? Whatever. But you know, Olympia was very su- DIY supportive, kind of the perfect place to start a band. And so we kind of just took off from there. But um, I think first we kind of met people through like Calvin Johnson, like DC people through Calvin Johnson, Lois Maffeo, and like Toby Vale. And um, because they had already been to DC. Calvin, I think, had one parent, Calvin Johnson from K Records. He had one parent in living in DC and one in Olympia, I'm pretty sure. He grew up like that. Mm -hmm. So I think he was kind of that connection that because people always ask about the only DC connection. And it's like, well, I think it's it started with Calvin as far as I know. Yeah. Um, so he knew Fugazi and then Nation of Ulysses was, you know, was also a new band at the time. And, um, so we met, I, I went out to, um, oh, well, actually I should explain that Molly Newman, um, from Bratmobile, she's the drummer. She actually grew up in Washington, DC. Okay. I didn't know that. So that was another connection, (laughs) but I don't think she really, she didn't come up in the punk scene. I think she came up more in the go-go scene and, um, but she was aware of the punk stuff. And so, and I kind of introduced her to the Olympia DIY music stuff. And, um, and she was very political, politicized. And so, you know, we kind of influenced each other in all these ways. Um, but also, we, you know, I kind of would come home with her, like for spring break or stuff like that. And, um, you know, we, that's when, we got to meet people like from Fugazi and Nation of Ulysses and other people. So um, that's kind of how we got connected with them. And, you know, everybody was really supportive and really great. And so, yeah, it was cool. But it was interesting. Like D.C. to me was so different from Olympia. Like, you know, I grew up in Olympia. It's like super like 
feminist, um, lesbian feminist town, at least to me. My mother was like a lesbian feminist, so maybe that's my experience of it. But um, we're, And then, of course, in our scene that we were really getting going with, with Bikini Kill and everyone, it was like also kind of seemed to be run by women. And at the time, K Records was run at least half run by Candace Pedersen and um and there's just lots of cool women playing music and doing cool stuff owning like cool vintage shops and making doing art whatever um and so, so it was kind of weird to go to DC yeah so the vibe was a little different in DC I imagine yeah it felt pretty male dominated to me mm-hmm. and I don't mean that like I mean for sure like these guys were super politically aware you know they were politically conscious and stuff like that and they you know thought about things like feminism and whatever um so i'm not saying oh they were like these bros but no matter what it still just kind of had a a male vibe in a way i guess i mean i don't know maybe i'm i i know you know third wave feminism is probably overly gendered so forgive me everyone but um (laughs) You know, but it definitely, we were definitely like, we're girls and they're boys, you know, whatever. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I don't know. So and th- I got, that's kind of how I started to get to know them. Yeah, it's, it seems like, I mean, I don't know to what degree um, Fugazi was entwined with your scene, but of course, like, Guy married um, Kathy from Bikini Kill. I don't know how far back that relationship goes. Um, but I always just sort of imagined I you guys do. were pretty tight. Oh, <laughs> but I'm not gonna say anything. That's fine. All um, right. No, I'm just kidding. It's just it's not my story to tell, anyways. Yeah. But um, yeah. No, we were very much intwi- intertwined with them. Like, and that's one thing is um that you know I feel like when people like write or talk about Fugazi, they often don't think about like the surrounding scene you know or whatever or when they talk about riot girl or bikini kill or whatever they don't think about like kind of the fuller community and sometimes people are surprised by some of the connections yeah but yeah um so yeah we were definitely friends with fugazi and we were friends with nation of ulysses and we all influenced each other quite a bit um, you know what I was thinking earlier today? It just occurred to me literally today, and I never thought about it before, but I was thinking about uh, Guy's lyrics in the song Forensic Scene, if you know that one. Um, it's like, it's a little reminiscent of your memorable lyric, um, you want to stab me and fuck the wound. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know if any of our listeners might have caught that, but it just struck me as like, oh, I wonder if Guy was sort of like uh, taking a little Bratmobile uh, uh, note there. <laughs> well, let's just say that he did. <laughs> no. But, you know, I, I also think back then, maybe it's just my songwriting, but I'm always kind of referential of pop culture and, and, and seeing whatever punk culture and things like that. Whatever kind of conversations are going on around me or songs I heard lately, mm-hmm. I often reference that stuff in my own songs. And, you know, I have had people say, oh, you're stealing lyrics. But it's no, it's more like just kind of paying tribute or referencing you know yeah so yeah or at least i think so um anyway so that's cool i hope that's true that fugazi got something from us (laughs) but i don't know but yeah so i mean it's just funny at the time because so many people in the punk scene especially a lot of guys really worshipped fugazi and still do and i just never was one of those people like because i really didn't know about them until the first time I saw them and I liked them 
Um, but I did, I wasn't like a super fan or whatever. And, but I, you know, definitely enjoyed being friends with them and stuff like that. So I think it kind of gives me a different perspective, like in a way, not being like a super fan or something and not really, I don't know a whole lot of their music, you know? I mean, obviously I've seen them play a bunch and I have some records and stuff and yeah, and Uh, I like it, but, but about your perspective, I, I did think um, you would have a great one, especially for talking about the song that we're discussing today. Um, so I guess I'll just go ahead and, and introduce that. So we're talking about Reclamation. It's a big one. It's uh, As far as Fugazi's live shows, it is the number two most played song in their catalog. According to available data, they played this 593 times, if you can imagine playing a song that many times. Um, so... It, to say it's a live staple is really an understatement um and yeah like for me speaking personally before i had ever even heard the song before i owned the album steady diet of nothing i went to my first fugazi show which was a rock for choice benefit show and i remember like pretty vividly a quote from the song reclamation was printed on the the ticket or maybe the flyer um, but that's where I first encountered those lyrics, right? These are our demands. We want control of our bodies. Decisions will now be ours. And um, I, I just remember that striking me right off the bat. And uh, what I was going to say about your perspective is like the basically the feminist and pro-choice movement is kind of in your DNA, right? Um, your mother apparently founded the first women's clinic in Olympia, Washington. Yeah. Yeah, and it was the second one in Washington State, I believe. Like, at least the one one that was like run by a woman, you mm-hmm. know, for by foreign about women. Yeah, by wow. a nurse practitioner. Yeah. So yeah, so, I I imagine you have uh, a lot of thoughts uh, on the topic, and it's it's clearly something that's sort of come across in your career. Do you remember encountering the song for the first time and how you heard uh, how you felt about it? Yeah, well, it's funny. I kind of have a brattier take on the whole thing, <laughs> as I I should since I was in a band called Bratmobile. Sure. Um, but um, but yeah, I mean, like for sure, like these. I mean, I do appreciate now that Fugazi took on you know topics like sexism and stuff and and sang out about it because a lot of guys, you know, even though they maybe weren't acting super sexist outwardly, they probably weren't necessarily like sticking up for women or anything like that. So, you know, I appreciate that. And I I have talked to Ian Mackay about um, various songs and and things. And he was like, well, how could we not sing about it? He was like, it's a human thing, you know, like this is human condition and these are like, you know, social ills and whatever, you know, and I get that. Yeah. Um, But at the same time, I think, you know, at the time for sure, um, most of us riot girls were a little bit um, uh, concerned about songs like Suggestion first. And then I see Reclamation as sort of Suggestion Part 2. <laughs> but a similar vein where it's like he, Ian Mackay, I think, wrote the lyrics to both. And he's singing about sexism as experienced by a woman. Right. And it's, you know, in the first person. Um, and it, you know, which, okay, that's an interesting artistic choice. And I know he has the right to do that. But I think a lot of um, us, you know, kind of third wave feminist riot girls were um, bothered by that. And yeah. uh, we were just kind of like, well, but you don't experience this in a first person way. So why must you sing in first person? And I'm sure that 
there he has reasons for that. And I I know I talked to him. I was actually reviewing an interview that I did with him to try to find exactly what he said about it. And he, it, this conversation went on so long, I had to stop the tape when you called. But um, <laughs> anyways, but I got some of his comments out there, but um, or ideas at least. Um, but so anyway, so that was my kind of feeling about it when I first heard it. Um, but at the same time, I don't know. So, so I, like, I have if you issues could, with it. If you could summarize his response to that, like, do you, uh, do, what's the general tenor of what he had to say if, if, when you were asking him about that? Well, I think it's kind of like what I said, where he was just like, well, I have a right to my art and to express myself how I want. And I have a right to sing. You know, he was saying that Riot Girls were telling him he didn't have a right to sing those songs. And maybe some people said that. I never said that to him. But I felt like it's I questioned the writing um, about a woman's experience in the first person when you didn't have that experience. Yeah. Um, But at the same time, I don't know, you know, Okay, like I. Maybe he's right. I don't know. But um, but I think he and like I said, he was just kind of saying, like, we we all need to sing about these things because, you know, something like sexism affects all of us, you know, and, um, you know, men need to change their behavior and, and, you know, whatever towards women and all this kind of stuff. And so I get it. But I, I think that it, the way I kind of saw it was like this almost um when all of us olympia girls kind of descended upon um dc the summer of 1991 it was like bikini kill toured across the country with nation of ulysses they ended up in dc bratmobile okay well aaron and molly well aaron smith already our guitarist already lived there um and then molly is from there so of course she went home every summer and then i flew out and so we were gonna all be there together for that summer um I think that our brand of feminism was kind of new, like, you know, in a way it was super like femi mm-hmm. and um, kind of uplifting. I guess some people would say infantilizing, but like uplifting um, girl culture, like girly young girl, te- teenage girl bedroom culture, basically. Right. And kind of trying to say, like, we don't have to use the terminology of second wave feminism to be feminist. Um, and not exactly like it's not like, oh, we're killing our mothers in order for us to grow. It's not like that. Mm-hmm. But it's just kind of extending or adding on or, you know, whatever, broadening the whole thing um, of feminism and sort of being like, well, you know what? You can be wearing like, you know, high heels and a skirt and still be a feminist. You can be a stripper, sex worker and still be a feminist. You can be, you know, whatever, lipstick, lesbian, all this, you know, where it's like. Why not? And I feel like the scene, the DC scene almost seemed to me like it was still a little bit in the second wave feminist um, uh, vibe and that it was still this thing where I think all these women felt like they had to be really tough and not, you know, and kind of dress in a like, I don't know, kind of a non-gendered way or something or like a, you know, whatever unisex kind of way in order to be taken seriously and all that kind of stuff. And I, you know, that's fine, but it wasn't our take. And so I think there was a little bit of almost a clash between second and third wave feminist style. Mm. But I think really it was more semantics and style. I think ultimately, like, you know, we had a lot of the same concerns and stuff. But it seemed kind of like that was going on. But also I think it seemed to a lot of DC women like, 
these girls came out of nowhere and are kind of trying to say like, hey, we're feminists. Is, you know, why don't you get on board? And they were like, well, we're already feminists, but in our own way. So I get it. <laughs> it was a little. So it was sometimes I guess it was a little tense sometimes in various ways. Yeah, well, I'm, um, I'm glad um, to hear your comments. I was going to ask you exactly that about, you know, uh, people who sort of bristled at in sort of speaking for women or, or singing in first person like that. Do you think for second wave feminists, they would have been more accepting of that and a little less? Uh... I mean, I don't know, because I don't want to exactly say I know, like, because I also I kind of don't like speaking in waves, even though I just did all that. Yeah, um, okay. I don't really believe in waves. I kind of feel like it's like continuous struggle, you know, and it's just like, you know, and things are constantly changing and updating and whatever. But just to kind of just because for lack of better words, I just kind of use that. But um, I think. Well, I don't know. I mean, I don't know how second wave feminists would have felt about a man speaking in first person about a woman's experience. I don't know. Um, but at the same time, I do know that uh, most of the women that I ever have you know, talked to or whatever in the D.C. scene, of course, love Fugazi. And I mean, I love them, too, but loved um, the songs Reclamation and Suggestion. And really felt for those. Now, I didn't come up in that scene. So there's probably there could have been very personal experiences that those songs were written around that I didn't know I wasn't aware of. So that could be part of it. But they really embraced those songs. Yeah, that uh, style. But I, I think your perspective is totally fair. I was thinking earlier, like, pretend Ian had written a song about racism speaking in first person as a black person like i don't know if that would be received quite as well as reclamation right i mean i there i think some riot girls had a stronger reaction to it than i did like i mean i heard that uh (laughs) some women got together and did some kind of talk radio show on a public radio station about it (laughs) um i but i've never heard that tape or whatever so i don't know but (laughs) so Um. But I wasn't there. I'm just going to say that, right. Ian, I was not there. Um, but speaking of when you were there, um, I'm happy to edit this out if it's not something you want to talk about. But there was this story about um, something that happened, an incident during a performance of Reclamation involving you. <laughs> Is that something you would like to tell our listeners who haven't heard it? Yeah, of course. That was like, that's the main story. Um, okay. <laughs> yeah. So that's the main story. Um, well... I, yeah, so the summer of 1992, so I spent the summer of 91 and the summer of 92 in D.C. Um, And, uh, you know, there's a lot of kind of like politicized musical energy going on both those summers and a lot of community building and stuff within the D.C. and some Olympia people scene. Um, So there was, uh, there were all these um, benefit concerts going on and positive force would put them on usually. Right. And so Positive Force had put were putting on a show and I believe it was July twenty fifth, nineteen ninety two. And it was um, on the Capitol grounds or it was in front of the Supreme Court, I believe. And it was a protesting the Supreme Court. Um, I believe um, Bush Senior was still in office or I know that a lot of politics were um, that we had were influenced by 
the kind of Reagan and then Reagan light, like Bush senior Mm -hmm. (laughs) and that continuation. So, you know, and the idea of him stacking the Supreme Court with conservative justices. And then um, I know I'm pretty sure it was in October of um, 92. Oh, wait, 91. Yeah, late 91, October 91, I think, that uh, the whole Anita Hill um, speaking out against Clarence Thomas okay. and that story breaking. And then, you know, and then, of course, he was still, even with all her testimony, he was still, like, you know, pretty quickly, um, you know, let into the Supreme Court. Right. And, um, you know, and that was just really disappointing. And um, so I think there it was kind of like a lot of issues like that. And, of course, always worried that... Roe v. Wade is going to get overturned because that just seems to come up all the time. And we definitely have to worry about Supreme Court justices with that, um, you know, just sort of reproductive rights. Um, so uh, anyways, so Fugazi is uh, going to play this show. It's going to be outdoors. It's hot, swampy D.C. summer. And um, Bikini Kill ends up opening as well. And it's um, I don't know. It's like it, I think there was by then there were some kind of divisions and tensions in the scene, in our scene between different camps and groups. And so, I mean, I think it was a little bit tense in ways. Um, I know that when Bikini Kill played on stage and when Fugazi played, I was standing on the stage like but in the back and there was no back to it. It was just an open flat stage, like open from all sides. Right. And so I was standing like um basically stage right to the back. And um I was standing there with Chris Bald, who was used to be in Ignition and Faith and um Embrace and probably other bands. Um good friend of mine from back then. And so we were standing there on stage just watching everything. It was awesome. And he was a big supporter of Bikini Kill. He was really awesome. And um so when I noticed when Bikini Kill was playing, it seemed to me that like it was super strong, all the girls to the front and all that kind of stuff. And I don't know if it was while they were playing or if it was later when Fugazi was playing. But at some point I was like, you know what? There are some really like broed out dudes in the crowd. And they were just kind of I thought what I saw was them harassing women um, in the crowd. Now. Ian claims that the women started the pit fight. <laughs> and I'm not saying he's totally wrong, but he he noticed that. But And I'm sure maybe the women were being, you know, a little sensitive. I don't know. But that's, you know, isn't that how we are? Um, anyways, but I, but, you know, tensions were high, I think. Huh. And the stakes were high, probably. Um, but I just saw, and I, and I noticed this a lot with um, Fugazi concerts. At the time, I really felt this way. And I love Fugazi, and this is no reflection on them. But you know how you can love a band, but their audience can drive you crazy. Totally. So, right? And so, like, like Nirvana crowds. Oh, you know, so sexist, awful. Like, not everyone, but like, you know, up front, sure. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you have all these guys with long hair, you know, pushing you around and screaming, rape you, rape me in, in you know, your ear, whatever. Um, anyways, um, but so, yeah, Fugazi, you know, would sing these really like kind of politically right on songs and stuff like that. And, and then all these um, guys who I felt like often like audience guys who are often like really shitty to their girlfriends or really um, shitty to other women in the crowd or whatever, or would always like kind of 
you know, throw a lot of um, hay and shade to Bikini Kill, yet they're at every Bikini Kill show. Um, And we just saw them all in the crowd, and they were just kind of like being jerks. And then here comes Reclamation, that song, and they know all the lyrics. So all these bro dudes are like singing about a woman's experience in the first person. Right. (laughs) And it just made me so angry. I'm just like... I hate you guys. I mean, not Fugazi, but their crowd. I was just like, ugh. And, but also, there's n- back then, there were absolutely no bathrooms at all on the Capitol Mall. Mm-hmm. And there was not even food. You couldn't even get food. You couldn't go to the bathroom, nothing. So I was full, period. And I had these stretch jeans on with a side zipper. <laughs> and I was like, you know, you could, you could, well, I'm not saying you know. Well, I don't know if you bleed or not. But, anyways, <laughs> um, you could, when you, you know, when it's like, past due like oh i gotta change this thing right now and but i'm not gonna miss this show and i'm on stage so i just like i think i told chris bald and then i just side zipped unzipped reached in there yanked out my very full bloody tampon and i'm just like what do i do with this and then i was like you know what i'm throwing it in the crowd and i just envisioned it landing in the mouths of these jockey dudes (laughs) singing reclamation and I'm like, yeah, that would be awesome. And of course, I was inspired by Danita Sparks from L7, having done this previously, you know, quite famously, I guess. Uh-huh. Um, I don't know where she did it. Was it Lollapalooza? I don't know. Not Lollapalooza. Did that exist yet? I don't know. Whatever. But um, anywho, so I did. So I tossed it into the crowd. Now, I'm a really bad aim and a bad <laughs> arm and a bad throw. Yeah. So it actually went much lower than I meant to. I meant to toss it up and over Fugazi and into the crowd. Well, um, lo- it, w- it almost would have hit Ian's head. <laughs> but right then, you know how Ian Mackay does that thing where he with his guitar where he kind of bows down? Yes. Sometimes. Yeah. So he did one of those bow down things right at the moment that the tampon went flying and it was which was great because then it missed him and i felt relieved (laughs) but and then it went into the crowd and i didn't really see what happened and all i know is that chris bald was standing next to me laughing hysterically and um and i just was like well anyways now later you know i've talked about this in the interview with ian i talked to him about it he's like well why would you throw a tampon anyways? That's a hostile act. <laughs> <laughs> it, it definitely sounds like it's, it was a hostile act, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know. I've done it more than once, and I've thrown maxi pads. I don't usually use pads, but, you know. Um, I've, you got to work with what you have at the moment, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I know that when Bush, this is years later, but when Bush Jr., W, um, was reselected for the second time, we, uh, my band Party Line at the time, we were playing a show in D.C. Well, we lived in D.C. And it was like also right around Halloween or something, I guess, or right. Oh, I guess Halloween would have been before. Well, I don't know what happened. But anyways, we knew maybe it was the year after, whatever. But so we were just so bummed and everything. And we took all this fake blood and just poured it all over ourselves. And then we, um, I got like a bunch of maxi pads, big fat ones from the um, dollar store or whatever. And I just, we squirted fake blood on all 40 of them or something. And then we threw them out in the crowd while we were playing. And it was so funny because for ages after that, every now and then I'd hear like some guy or someone going like, oh yeah, these guys were so bummed and they were complaining that you guys threw like your real 
used maxi pads at them and it was so gross and they're all stuck to the floor and stuck to their pants and stuck to the, their feet. <laughs> and I'm like, do they know anything about menstruation? I like the we idea don't that bleed you bleed that much. <laughs> I like the idea that you were saving them up uh, for like weeks and uh, months <laughs> just to do this. I know how gross, right? Like no way. And it and it would smell like a dead animal if you did. So it's like it didn't smell <laughs> and it was like bright reds, you know, for you know, the whole night. So it wasn't real blood, you know, whatever. And it was tons of blood on each one. So it was funny. But I was just like, oh my God, these guys think that's real. They don't know anything about menstruation. Yeah, we don't. It's so. true. <laughs> so, but the thing that was sucked is that I think, I mean, Ian didn't know about it at the time. And I don't think he heard about it for until probably months later or whatever. But someone told him that I threw a tampon at him. And so that's kind of how the story went for years, I, I thought. And so that kind of bothered me that, like, the, that the narrative was that I was trying to throw a tampon at him. And, you know, like, I was pretty bratty towards him at the time. We were all kind of, like, you know, a little confrontational with him here and there. But, like, but I loved him, of course, and I still do. Um, well, I'm glad we've anyways. got the record straight then. Yeah, <laughs> there it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a that's an awesome and charming story. Uh, thank you for telling that. Um, I you're welcome. I had I had read about that briefly, but not in as much detail. And I like the detail. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, on this podcast, we really like to sort of go deep on these songs. And I, I did just want to point out a couple of elements that I thought were interesting. First, lyrically, because we sort of got off uh, on that foot, but. Um, Ian is often known as somebody who delivers these really sort of like barking, you know, I've, I've heard the phrase drill sergeant used for his voice uh, at times. And, <laughs> and it's interesting that he doesn't deliver the verse on this song in that way, right? He, and the lyrics are about, you know, these are our demands. We want control of our bodies. You, you would think it might be something that he would uh, sound really stern about. Um, but he that's not the choice he makes on this recording, which is in a way kind of effective. Like I can imagine that coming off as desperate, like delivering demands in that kind of voice rather than making them in a in a sort of calm, reasonable voice. I could see it working right. both ways, but I, I respect the choice. Right. Well, so he has different delivery styles, too. Right. Sometimes yeah. it's this almost matter of fact uh, conversational way that can be really effective in a way because kind of being like well this is just seems kind of obvious and why can't we just talk about it but yeah but then sometimes there's like a stronger voice that's like yeah okay well it has to be demanded and i think it goes and, hand in hand with um that I, as much as as an anthem as this song is for a lot of people it's intriguingly like non-confrontational in some ways like it's not insulting or demeaning to the other side there's some things that you could interpret as sarcasm, I guess, but I mean, you could read it literally too, like acknowledging that like, okay, you guys see your stance as noble and, and proper and whatever. So, all right, if you have to do that, fine, but here's what we have to do. Well, you know what? One thing that's really interesting about it is no, there is no gender mm -hmm. um, or, you know, named in the song at all so right. it's a little bit vague it's definitely more vague than um suggestion and maybe maybe that is what makes it kind of like okay it's he's singing in first person well we're just assuming he's singing about women's 
body issues or whatever and control of their bodies. I think he is, but you can't prove it because he doesn't say that. (laughs) So, you know, so maybe it is sort of like goes beyond just a gendered um, ideas of body. I don't know. I like looking around online uh, and seeing what are some thoughts that are floating out there about these songs. And for this one, I saw a comment on this one website that uh, the person commenting, thinking that this is a song about circumcision and that uh, we want control of our bodies being like an anti-circumcision statement. And uh, we want... uh, Yeah, (laughs) In, in a way I like it. In a way I'm like... Well, I think that's a real stretch. The scars being circumcision star, scars, 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 whatever. Scars. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, all right, yeah, you get you get credit for interesting interpretations there. Uh, I kind of like that. Oh, well, yeah, and and isn't that what a song really is? Yeah, totally. I mean, it's it's not even just it doesn't just belong to the person who wrote it, but ultimately, it's like how does the um, consumer or well, consumer, the audience or whatever. Um, how do they take it? How do they, you know, take it in? And what does it mean to them? Yeah. And we all make songs fit into what's going on in our lives. How does it speak to me? You know? Right. So yeah. why not? Something that has always confused me about it is at the end when Ian's singing Carry My Body. That was never really clear to me what he might have been singing about there. Do you have any thoughts on that? No, I the same thing that you're saying. I was like, this song actually, when you really look at the lyrics, doesn't make a lot of sense to me, or it's just very vague, and it does. There's not a lot explained here, so I'm just like, well, I don't know. Right. Um, I probably should have called him today and asked him. <laughs> <laughs> he would have given me a lot of shit, but anyways. Um, but I, f- um, I feel like I'm at risk of like having a lot of guests bother these guys when. Uh, I'm like, I, I want to make it clear to any members of Fugazi listening. I'm not asking my guests to uh, be calling you up and harassing you about what these songs mean. Um. <laughs> but I'm going to do it anyways. No, I'm kidding. I know it's it's odd, right? It's like return, return, return. And then it's like carry my body, carry my body. And it's like, what? <laughs> like, I don't know. What's going on? Um, I don't know. I, I think we do have to ask Ian. Hmm. I, I wish I'd asked him before. Did I ask him? No, I haven't asked him before. Yeah. Um, but I mean, you know, cause some of the earlier stuff seems a little bit clearer, like no one here is asking, right? Yeah. We're demanding, not asking and stuff. And then there's like this question of trust and, um, what looks good to you on paper. We do what we must. And it's sort of talking about, you know, I guess, you know, business as usual. Um, maybe it is talking about the Supreme court, you know, issues that were coming that were around at the time. Cause I think this, what the song was probably written in like 1991 at some point mm-hmm. right and the i mean it's hard it's so hard because when songs come out back then records took so much longer to press and to release i mean at least for us i mean it took a year probably maybe not as long for fugazi but like still it's not like it's probably as quick as it is now right so when something comes out, who knows what era that's really reflecting yeah. the, uh, the actual songwriting. Uh, another one of the political songs on the record is um, Dear Justice Letter, which is written in response to um, Souter or, or, or Brendan retiring um, in July 1990. So it's, it's not like there's a ton of lead up time. Um, and, I, and I imagine that Reclamation might be a song inspired by the same event. So that's that's my yeah. idea of, of when it was written, kind of. 
Well, right. And and also knowing that if you have a conservative um, president in office and the Supreme Court justices are, you know, getting up there in age or whatever, you know, like it's always the fear that they're going to put some right winger on the court for life. Yeah. And so it's always kind of an issue, even if like, you know, the, that replacement isn't happening right then or whatever, or even if one just happened. But, you know, and then w- the first thing that a lot of us think about, or at least I do, is um, reproductive rights. Yeah. And, and a lot of things like this, but it, it's actually much more than that. Right. It, yeah. it, it affects everything like, you know, like immigration policy and um, like LGBTQ rights and and severe lack of rights, you know, and things like that. And yeah, it's a big deal. And and we're we've got it's worrisome now, right? It's all but it's always been worrisome. Yeah. I think we've always kind of worried about this. Yeah. So whenever there's a conservative president in, you gotta worry. Yeah, and we're speaking in August of twenty twenty one here for, for people listening in the far future. And um I, I was sort of looking up the state of reproductive rights in twenty twenty one in the United States and uh I mean the list of states that have enacted like laws basically severely limiting or basically aiming aiming to you know uh, all but ban abortion there's mississippi louisiana yeah. texas arkansas oklahoma arizona south dakota montana new hampshire south carolina tennessee ohio kentucky idaho pennsylvania and missouri um there's stuff going on in all those states that right. the fight continues yeah. Tennessee makes me mad because I was born in Tennessee and I have a lot of family there. Oh. But anyways, it all makes me mad. But yeah, yeah I mean. So, so Tennessee in particular, uh, I just wanted to point out to people, they they passed this big measure in 2020, which included banning abortion as early as six weeks, which um, for people who aren't aware, according to the NIH, women become aware of their pregnancies between five and six weeks on average. Yeah, it's it's one of those things that is like I I really I guess I don't understand enough about law and precedent because it boggles my mind how the Supreme Court can rule that it's unconstitutional to outlaw abortion, but that states can make ridiculous laws like clinics can only be open for half an hour at four a.m. on Tuesdays or whatever, right? And they all have to go through the courts. It's crazy, right? And making the doctor have like whatever like hospital, yeah, what do you call it, admitting privileges or whatever you call it? Yeah, it's just come on, man. Like, obviously, they're just trying to shut it down. But, you know, my problem, first of all, is all the same people who are, say they're pro-life, and meaning they're anti-choice, they're not pro-life. They're probably the same people not wearing masks and mm-hmm. refusing to be vaccinated and, like, being totally pro-war and um, anti-government assistance for to, you know, improve people's quality of life. They don't care. Once the baby's born, they don't care about the quality of life. So they're they're not pro-life. Yeah. So there you go. But yeah, I mean, you know, I it, it is personal to me. Like, you know, we grew up and with my mom like starting the clinic all on her own. I mean, she she at first she couldn't even get a loan because she was an unmarried woman and they wouldn't the bank wouldn't even give a loan wow. to a woman who wasn't married. Yeah, to have the husband co-sign or whatever. And then, you know, and she struggled for years. It was really hard to get it off the ground and she got um like you know, targeted by all these right-wing protesters, like, all the time, you know, and they were really aggressive with her and, like, sometimes would assault her and stuff. And uh, she kept, held her head high, you know, she dealt with it pretty, pretty well. Like, you know, we would go to the clinic a lot. Sometimes I worked there or helped with things. 
And I couldn't hold my tongue. I would just like bitch them out every time and just yell and scream. Mom's like, you got to be better than them. I was like, ugh, how? But, you know, and we had weird stuff would happen. Like we had people throw rocks at our windows. I mean, I I can't say who. I don't know who, but it could have been that. And uh, my mom's received death threats. Um, We Someone... um, tried to burn our front door once or set it on fire. Um, Also, like, and I've told this story before, but, like, uh, one Monday when all of the people from the clinic came to work, they all had had to go to the emergency vet that weekend, and it seemed that someone had poisoned all of their animals. Everyone worked there. Yeah. Yeah. Just, you know, stuff like that. And it's just, they're nasty. It's real pro-life behavior. Right. I don't know. So, if, I don't know if you had this experience, but I have a friend who worked in a women's clinic, and she would tell me these stories about like the conservative women who would come in for abortions, and like this enormous amount of cognitive dissonance. Like, oh, like for me, this was just a, a complete mistake, like total innocent mistake, uh, and like the the attitude sort of being like, I have a problem with people who's like their lifestyle is abortion and, and you know. <laughs> I, oh, yeah, what a lifestyle. Yeah, it's, it's so <laughs> when it comes down to it, like as, as the lyrics in the song go, you know, we will do what we must. Like it's totally different for people when when things really matter, I guess. Yeah, it's like having an abortion is not a fun party. No. And no one, no one, of course, really wants to do that. And yeah, so come on. Uh, it's, yeah, it's a hard choice, but. You know, we'll, we're lucky, I guess, that if it will remain a choice. Uh, speaking of clinics, apparently there are a lot of fake health centers opened by right-wingers, religious people that are not actually in the business of giving abortions. And they just counsel women who come in not to have abortions um, uh, yeah. just un- under the guise of... That's not new. That, like, existed throughout the 80s for oh, really? sure. I know that my mom was always trying to get me and my sister to go to one of them undercover. And pretend that we were, like, pregnant or something. Wow. <laughs> and we were just like, no way, Mom. Because <laughs> I would just walk in there screaming at them. Wow. <laughs> that's what would happen. Yeah, I had no idea how long that was going on, but uh, that's super fucked up, too. Yeah, yeah, it's it's been a thing for quite a while. I mean, maybe it's kind of taking different forms and different, for sure, I'm sure, different names and stuff. But Well, uh, to hit on the music in this song a little, I, I wanted to say, I think, it's one of the great musical fakeouts in history. The way the song starts, these this very fast picking, uh, that's uh, Ian starts and then is doubled by Gee. It sounds like it's going to be a really fast hardcore song, and then uh, when the drums come in and the bass comes in, it's like, oh, actually, it's it's a very slow song, and uh, it's it's a really nice fakeout effect, and I very much respect that that little interesting yeah. effect. Yeah, it is. It's cool. <laughs> So, yeah, it's it's like it turns it's moody. <laughs> yeah. It's a super bassy uh, bass guitar sounds, not, you know, Joe can sometimes have a sort of rattly sound going on with his bass, but uh this one is really deep, really dubby, and I think that, you know, just overall a lot of people uh make a lot of the dry production sounds on this whole album where they basically didn't use any reverb. Um, and sometimes that doesn't work so much for me, but this is one of the songs where it kind of does work because of all the noise. There's this constant strumming without any silent spaces in the chorus. So yeah, it could get a little messy maybe with, uh, with reverb and yeah, maybe, maybe it's a song that benefits from that. 
Okay, I'm playing the song for a sec. Oh, no, not an ad. Well, anyways, <laughs> I'm on YouTube. But I was like, it's so weird. I mean, I, I, not that I haven't heard the song or yeah. anything, but it's so weird to talk about something but not hear it. So I'm like, okay, I'm listening. I, we're, we're just going to do some real time here. Sure. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, you know, Beavis and Butthead. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's such a, like, that riff. And then the drums come in, yeah. Oh. But you're right. And then it gets kind of mellow, you know, and repetitive. But it's almost kind of lungfishy. Well, maybe not quite, but. No, I, I think I hear that, yeah. But I know we, we you know, obviously lungfish is part of that scene. And I'm sure everybody's also influenced by them. Um, yeah, but it almost has that droney, like almost puts you in a trance kind of feel. Yeah, totally. And you're right. And then the music drops out pretty much. It gets very spare when Ian starts singing. Yeah, basically just some chiming harmonics that Guy is playing. Ian's really not playing anything on his guitar. Right, and it's almost kind of, it's harmonics, yeah, but it's almost kind of percussive as well. Well, there's also some light drums, but... yeah. Let's see, I don't know. Like, is Brendan playing that Liberty Bell? Maybe not till later. But <laughs> And then it goes into that again. But yeah, and that that riff, it almost sounds like there's like like a swarm of bees or something, right? It's just it's so it but it's really powerful. It sounds great. Yeah. And it's like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then I, I, it's a reclamation. <laughs> Reclamation! Yeah, here we go. That's where the drill sergeant thing comes out. <laughs> but then, yeah, the verses are very, like, just talkative. Just yeah, talkative. Kind of, like, The bass is a little bit herky-jerky, kind of. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I do like how when the second sort of chorus is coming up, Ian starts doing this little guitar beeping that comes in that he does sometimes. You oh can, yeah. Yeah, you can hear that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I love that yeah, that yell going into the yeah. it's really a wall of sound. I mean yeah, definitely. That's coming in and, um, uh, between the verses. But yeah, it's pretty uh, amazing, actually. I mean, you know, obviously they're a great band. <laughs> and uh I should listen to them more often because it's always awesome. Um Ooh, yeah. And there's, you know, there's hardly any words, really. There's yeah. hardly any lyrics. It's more like a feeling. Mm-hmm. It's more than a feeling. <laughs> Speaking of great songs, oh boy. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's almost like more of a mood that's being set. Yeah. But, yeah, it's interesting. Sonically um, captivating. Oh, yeah, here we go. Carry my body. Okay. We're screaming, carry my body. Okay, who's carrying whose body to where? That's what, that's the question. That's what we want to know. Yeah. Oh, and then it's over. <laughs> and okay. then boom, right, right up. I'll turn this off. <laughs> my best See, stab at it fun. is like, I, I, maybe he's taking language that is, you know, used in talking about pregnancy, like carrying a fetus, carrying a baby to term. And using that to talk about my body, my health is in 
uh, your hands, the hands of people making the laws in this country, the hands of people who are in this movement with me. Uh, that's my that's my best take on it that I can sum it up. Yeah, that makes sense, right? Yeah, it's like if someone's carrying your body, it's like a lack of control yeah. of your own body. Yeah, so you're right. It, yeah, it makes sense. I think we've cracked the code. <laughs> Even though you said you're not a Fugazi super fan, uh, I have to ask it because it's something I do every episode, uh, which is talk about ratings. Do you like me? Do you like me? Do you like me? And what I always ask my guests is uh, if you could rate this song in the context of the whole Fugazi catalog from a scale of one to five stars, like, is it among your least favorite, among your most favorite Fugazi songs? Um, do you have any perspective on that if you had to give it a rating? Oh, well, I think it's probably kind of right in the middle there somewhere. I mean, like, you know, like, Margin Walker is, like, always my fave. Oh, yeah? Um, oh, yeah. You know, that, that song just pumps you up, and, yeah, and it's so beautiful. It makes you feel so beautiful, <laughs> and um, all that. Um, you know, and Waiting Room and all this stuff, um, is, you know, classics. Especially, like, um, the have you've heard the mashup, right, of Waiting Room with um, Destiny's Child? I don't know if I've have heard you... that one. Destiny's Child oh. mashup? Oh, dude. Okay. As soon as we get out of this interview, you are Googling that and tell me if you can't find it, but it's or YouTubing it or whatever. But it's a mashup with um, Destiny's Child. Um, you know, it's, it's like, shoes on my feet, I got a bottom ring, I'm, I'm a rock, I'm rocking, I bought it. You know, anyways, whatever. Wait, what's that? Oh, I did. Wait, independent. I'd say there's a 95% chance I've heard it and I just have forgotten about it, but I will absolutely look it up and put it in the show notes uh, just in case people... Uh, have missed that one dude it so rules yeah um, my ra- um, my rating for I, this song i like uh, as it, it's funny i think sometimes a fugazi song like the the live performance really outweighs what's on the record because um as a song on the record for me this song was always kind of averageish, kind of middling and i i think the it's maybe something about the verses being i don't know uninspiring maybe but yeah, I think as a live song, this uh, the song Reclamation was so immense and so like powerful that uh, I think I'll you know I'll give it a, a four star rating. Yeah, I, it's definitely a, a live classic, and that has to weigh heavily in my consideration here. Yeah, but don't you think it kind of like you know listening to it again, it it sounds better than I remember it. Maybe just because I kind of had that thing. That feeling against it uh, because of the first person thing. So maybe that just kind of made me be like, that's all right. Yeah. But, you know, it actually sounds better listening to it again. The, I'll, I'll um, say the drum sound was better than I remember. Yeah. In particular. Yeah. And and just that big like, and the guitar part is so cool. Right. Um, I'm trying to think like what song of other songs that I'm like, like that are big classics for me. Not that we're supposed to talk about other songs, but. I mean, oh. what was what's a song where like it's really soft and kind of brooding, and it's I think it's uh, Gee and maybe Kathy singing on it. I don't know. There's a woman singing on it, and it's like, like it is violence or something like that. Um, or, is it or, something? Or, or violence doubles or the something like that. Oh yeah. Um, what, what what's that song? I love that song. <laughs> what is it? Yeah, from from the argument. It's uh it's called Life and Limb. 
Oh, Life and Limb. That's right. I love that song. Yeah. I just want to put that out there. Okay. <laughs> it, Anyways. It is really good. <laughs> I know. I, I like that because it's good to get a context for uh, where my guest, you know, sort of calibrates their ratings. We know what they're measuring it against. So uh, it's good to know your faves. I'd like to, there's the Alphabetical Fugazi Facebook page where some of our listeners chime in with some of their comments uh, about the song. I'll read off a couple of those just so it's not the two of us uh, hogging the conversation. Um, Addison Pollock says, the beginning with the twin guitar windup is amazing. I'm always taken by Guy's harmonic picking during the verse when played live. Justin Rushkolb says, I always thought this song was kind of meh until I saw it played live for the first time. Such a powerful song. The intensity and pace of the guitars over the halftime drums and bass doesn't really translate as well to the recording as it does live. Um, yeah, I, I feel the same way for sure. Uh, Pat McGauley said, as someone who went to a Catholic school in a country where abortion was illegal and would remain so until 2018, I'm guessing he's talking about Ireland? Uh, reclamation blew my young teenage mind and made me question and ultimately reject what I had been taught about reproductive rights up to that point. Killer baseline too. Mm, interesting. I guess I was raised very differently, so I was rejecting it from the get-go. <laughs> uh, Raygun Rochester says, five out of five, amazing how they were able to make a song as musically powerful as the message. I get chills every time. Um... Andrew Crippen says, I vividly remember being at the Lafayette, Louisiana show that is in instrument. I was right in front of Ian. During the solo at the end of the song with a bass line and double guitars playing tremolo, I felt complete satisfaction. I have never had this feeling at any other show. Uh, speaking of the instrument uh, film, there's a moment in that that really, <laughs> that really sort of captures <laughs> what you were talking about, Allison, where some real bros are causing a lot of trouble in the audience and... There's a there's one snippet of reclamation where there's like a dude up front with his fist in the air singing reclamation along with the band. And then he pulls down his fist and elbows somebody in the face like really hard. Uh, it's just it seems completely. See? Yes, absolutely. Like, is does, does he have any idea what he's singing about? And then a tampon. About yeah. And then a tampon landed in his mouth. It's yeah, so weird. That guy needs the tampon treatment. <laughs> that's funny that you saw that in the in instrument that's hilarious see i'm right and yeah and it's clearly something the band made a deliberate choice about you know focusing on this asshole he's like front and center they like they wanted to show him doing this and like how ridiculous it was which is you know <laughs> i think they made similar choices throughout a lot of that documentary um but uh <laughs> Uh, let's see, just a couple more. I'll, I'll say uh, Josh Saunders said, uh, the bass melody over the top of the tremolo guitar picking immediately gives it a great sonic hugeness. It's also one of their best examples of musical tension release. Uh, and that, yeah, that's something we've talked about on this podcast a lot. Um, and uh, finally, yeah. Rob Virginio says... That's like says, their signature. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And Rob Virginio says, as we spoke about, uh, he's a, a previous guest of this podcast, uh, the song that made me first fell in love with this band. Um, so thanks for all your comments, guys. And um, before we guys, leave... Guys, okay, wait a second. I just want to say, did any women write in and say anything about this? There, yes, there was, a, there was a lady in there under an alias. Um, I don't... Oh, okay. All right, all right. I, just make it sure. I believe right. she emailed me and I know her real name, but I don't know if I want to blow up her spot. But uh, yeah, so Allison Wolf, do you have any plugs? Never mind what's any kind of uh, projects happening right now or anything at all you want to point out to our listeners to check out? Well, let's see. Um, 
I haven't didn't do a whole lot during the pandemic. I felt very unmotivated, but I'm trying to get back into things. Um, but uh, I I guess one of the most recent releases I did, I was in a, a project band with Alice Bag and Seth Bogart. Um, who was, you know, from Gravy Train and Hunks and His Punks and Alice Bag, of course, famous Alice Bag, and um, the legend. But we were in a project band together and we put out a six song EP. It's on vinyl and uh, digital. And uh, that came out during the pandemic. It's called, um, the band is called Clicky Bitches, and the EP <laughs> is called, yeah, we used to be called Scorpio Scorpio, but we changed our name a bunch. So anyway, we, we changed it at the end to Clicky Bitches right before we broke up. And then we uh, ended up calling the EP Scorpio Scorpio, which was, you know, our earlier name, band name. So that's that, and that's out and about. Um, also, I... Um, I'm slowly uh, working on a project with uh, Joey Karam um, or Kareem Joseph Karam from Le Shock. He played drums in Le Shock. Mm -hmm. And he also um, played um, keys in The Locust. Really awesome friend of mine. He's also Scorpio, by the way. And so is the other guy in this little musical thing, Cody Willis from Murder City Devils and Big Business and formerly the Melvins and stuff. So he's also a Scorpio. So we're triple Scorpio. Anyways, um, <laughs> but we didn't call our band uh Triple Scorpio. But there, so we're slowly working on this project. Well, they've written tons of songs, and really, I just need to put my vocals to it. And I've, I've been, I got about three songs going so far, but I just, I need to get on it. Anyways, but we're called Magic Witch Cookbox, <laughs> which is a dumb name, but I named it. Um, but it means, um, it, it, I found it in Best of Craigslist. It means uh, microwave. Someone was selling a microwave but they called it Magic Witch Cookbox. <laughs> That's so a good name for a microwave. Funny. I think that should be a brand okay. name at some point. <laughs> I know. So that's something that um, is in the works. Um, also, I um, have done a podcast called I'm in the Band. And um, you can find that on either Tidal, if you pay for Tidal streaming service, or you can find it for free on Tidal's YouTube channel, but I am planning to revive that. And it was basically talking to not just women, but um, I guess mostly women, but, but, but just talking to people who are kind of um, underrepresented in, well, in the world. Well, or not the world, but in society, in our society and in punk music and whatever, um, and um, cultural activists and just kind of like, how did they make their way and how do they do their art and stuff like that. So, um, a lot of great guests so far, and I'm got more to come. So that's something. Awesome. And I'm working on a oral history of Riot Girl book. Slowly, I'm doing that. Awesome. So sweet. Yeah. Um. Well, as always, listeners, check the show notes for all of Allison Wolf's plugs, and I'll I'll put as many links in there as possible so you can. Uh, Go and check that stuff out with a minimum of effort from you, uh, which I know you all love. Um, thank you so much, Allison Wolf. A real treat to talk to you. You've been a pleasure. And um, listeners and Aww. anyone who hears this can reach me at fugaziatoz at gmail.com. 
And if you want, you could join that Facebook group and get your own comments in there, especially if you're women. <laughs> and be like, the fucking bitch. <laughs> only, had, only had one comment from a woman on Reclamation. Um, we have to do better. We must. So please join in there. Uh, <laughs> and uh, for everyone else who simply wants to listen, I hope you will join me for the next episode when we'll be discussing Rendit. Until then, keep your eyes open. Let's go, let's go.